All right, let's take our Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and hopefully my voice will linger with me throughout this message. So I want to talk about the topic out of Ecclesiastes 4 and answer the question, where am I going in life? Now, whether you realize it or not, you probably in a hundred different ways throughout the course of your week are asking yourself that question, where am I going in life? You know, what am I doing? What, what, where's this all going? What, you know, why do I work? <laughs> well, you want a paycheck, right? You want to have a house over, you know, a, a roof over your head. You want to have food on your table. We get that. But sometimes in the midst of that, it's like, well, really, what's the meaning of my work? And what, what's, what's the purpose behind it? Is it just to make a paycheck? And so if I were to take a digital recorder and put it inside your brain and let it go up on the screen about the thoughts you're having in answering this question about where am I going in life, I can almost assure you that all of your thoughts in regards to that question will involve a two-letter word called me, right? So we are all concerned about ourselves, where we're going in life, what's happening in life, how does that affect me? For example, if you get in your car and you go somewhere and somebody pulls out in front of you and almost sideswipes you, you're, you're mad, you're angry because it is affecting you, right? It, they may have hit your car or maybe they hit your car, didn't have insurance or Maybe you go to the store and somebody like you're getting ready to get in the line, somebody jumps in front of you and now all of a sudden you're mad because you're worrying about, okay, how is this affecting me? So it is natural and normal for every single one of us to think in terms of where am I going in life and then we think of it in terms of how, where am I going? Where, how is this affecting me? How is this all, uh, whether I'm under stress or I'm tired or relaxed and cared free, or we, we process these things through an even bigger issue. Again, why am I working so hard? Is it worth it? What am I living for? What am I achieving? What am I failing at? So all of these questions rumble through our thought processes. And the main point of this, whether it's trivial or important things, one person I'm always actually aware of is, is me. All right, so all of my plans and the things that I do really are scheduled around me. When I get up in the morning and I say, okay, you know, what's my day going to look like? More than likely, I'm scheduling my time, my calendar around me. And so Solomon uh, wants to challenge us in this chapter because remember, this is an autobiography, kind of his um, journal. And he says, you know what, I've made a lot of mistakes through the course of my life. And one of the mistakes that I made is that when I thought about this question, where am I going in life? The only person I ever thought about when I was answering that question was me. And quite frankly, I was looking for meaning and purpose and happiness and joy and all those contentment and all those things in life. But I just kept surrounding everything about making it all about me. And when I did so, I just kind of closed the walls in around me and it became a very tight space. And I discovered I wasn't really finding what I was looking for. I wasn't really finding meaning. I wasn't really finding purpose or joy or contentment until I learned how to make a shift from me to we. How is this going to affect us? And so Solomon in his wisdom says, I tried it the other way. I tried living just for me, but I discovered that was the source of my problem. So I had to learn if I'm going to find true meaning, purpose, contentment, joy, why I'm here, where I'm going, then I have to move from me to we. In fact, you'll find this all throughout the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, especially the letters to the church and Jesus' teachings about the church, all of the personal pronouns in the English look like they're singular, but in the Greek they are plural, saying not you, but you all. And so collectively, as a community, as an ecclesia, as called out ones of Christ, we are not to be living me lies, but we are to be living we lies. And when we begin to make that transfer from me to we, things begin to change and things begin to transpire in our hearts and our lives. Now, if you can live a world in a world in such a way that the person or people beside you, your friends, your spouse, your children, um, your siblings, people God puts in your pathway, and you are, your waking concern and your dominant focus is... Um, on them, you're going to start finding happiness. You're going to start finding meaning and purpose. In fact, what Solomon's going to say is you're going to, find, you're going to start finding rest 
for your soul. That there's going to be a transition deep within you that you will find in no other way until we get out of this me-centeredness into the concept and the thought processes of we-centeredness. So every time I make a decision, it's not just about how's it affecting me, but how's it going to affect others? How will it affect my wife? How will it affect my children? How will it affect the church? How will it affect a lot of different things? And so, um, you know, for example, my son-in-law boosted out a post his... um, his cousin, their house burned down yesterday. They have five children. They've lost everything. I mean, everything. Everybody got out okay, but they lost everything. And he's such a big-hearted, kind-hearted guy. I mean, he loves to think about others. And so he did. He started boosting it out there. Hey, he got the sizes of the clothes and said, you can help anyway. Gift cards, money, clothing, whatever. And so he's organizing all of this and putting it all together because his focus is not on me, how it's just, just going to affect me, but it affects all of us, right? So it's not just his cousin, but it's his family and his extended family and those who are part of his life. Now, there are three kinds of people that Solomon is going to talk about in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. All right, so uh, I'll give them to you. There are evil people, there are foolish people, and then there are wise people. And one person, the first book that I ever read um, that dealt with these three um, types of people Really, I heard this first when he taught a conference many years ago, but he put it in a book by Henry Cloud called Necessary Endings. Now, Henry Cloud is a Christian psychologist. If you've never read his book, Boundaries, you ought to read it. Everybody ought to read Boundaries. It's all about boundaries and relationships. Uh, you ought to read Necessary Endings because some relationships need to have a necessary ending. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today and why that is. But um, so Solomon touches on all three of these people because when you think about friendships and when you think about relationships, not all friendships and relationships are created equally. In other words, there is certain information that I will, I will share about myself with friends, but there are other friends I would never share that information with. Because I, one set of friends, they've got my back. Uh, they're going to, you know, challenge me. They're going to push me. They're going to try to make me better. The other person may just take it as gossip and go out and tell everybody about it. See the difference? All right, so he's going to differentiate here through these these evil, wise, and foolish people that helps us to determine what kind of person your friend is or the acquaintance you have, and it helps you determine the level of access of information you're going to give them and the level of friendship that you're able to obtain with that kind of person. So we find the first one in chapter 4 and verse 4. He says this, And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Now this is the evil person. They live for self out of envy. They live for self out of envy. In other words, that's their motivation. They can't rejoice with those who are rejoicing. They can't celebrate with those who are celebrating because they are envious of what that person has, and they don't. Kind of get the picture? So the Bible talks a lot about the envious heart, especially in the book of Proverbs, and of course, again, writings of of Solomon. And so uh, the truth is, a lot of the stuff that we possess uh, are status symbols for us, right? My status is based upon what kind of car I drive, uh, what's my zip code, what kind of house do I live in, whose name's on my underwear. Um, you know, we, we like to dress for success. We like to dress to, to make us seem accomplished or valuable in the eyes of others. I mean, you all have probably watched the red carpets uh, on, you know, when they're having Academy Awards and all of that. And what's the very first question when the ladies come up in their beautiful dresses? Who are you wearing? And so they, you know, they, they rattle off the name of some famous designer whom I've never heard of, and you find out they spent like you know, $50,000 for a dress I wouldn't have given five bucks for. But, uh, and so they rattle off the names. It's like, well, you know, I'm so important. I'm so valuable to the academy that, well, this designer designed this dress specifically for me. 
Now, if you're not careful, you know, you can watch that stuff and you can begin to become a little envious over people like that. Like, man, wouldn't it not be nice to have $50,000 to drop on a dress that you're going to wear one evening and then probably give it to somebody else or hang it in your closet and never be worn again? And wouldn't it be nice to have this, that, or the other? And so Solomon warns us that if we're not careful, we can take our possessions or even the technology that we own and use them as status symbols that will define us and project an image of our value to somebody else. If I have better appearance than you, or if I have a better spouse than you, or if I have picture-perfect children and you don't, and I have a bigger home or fancier car or labels on my clothes, that might indicate that I'm more successful, more valuable, and have achieved and accomplished more than you. And so sometimes that's the motive behind what we do and what we wear and the things that we drive and the things that we possess not saying there's anything wrong with possessing things. That's not his, his point. His point is, am I do, what's the motive behind what I do? Can I not celebrate with other people because I'm envious of them? Can I, can I not rejoice with them because I am envious of them? Because if I live with a heart of envy, I'm constantly living in comparison, right? Contrast and comparison. And so the twinge in our heart is, because our hearts are deceitful, is that well, you know, okay, they may have that, but you know what? They don't really deserve it. I deserve that. Or let's say you're at work and somebody gets a promotion. You don't, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I deserve that promotion. They don't deserve that promotion. I deserve that raise. They didn't deserve that raise. They didn't earn that. Well, you know, they, they, they just like, they're, they're, they're just lazy. And so uh, my heart is infected with coveting and jealousy. And if you get something I think that's not fair because I should have had it or I should have had better, then that just kind of hypes me up, right? And so I become envious. For example, um, because we tend to, to uh, develop our sense of worth and value around what we possess and what we own and the things that we have, when you get in a situation where you don't have those things, it's very easy to become envious. For example, when I was in seminary, uh, I worked for Bass Brother Enterprises. Bass Brothers, or there's uh, four brothers and their father. They have a, a company called Bass Brother Enterprises, as well as other Sid Richards and Oil and Gas and all kinds of other. Anyways, but collectively, they're among the ten you know, wealthiest people in the world at that time. And um, so we, I worked in downtown in, the, in their corporate offices. I mean, I were where all the executives were. I worked in the mailroom, okay? So I was, I was low man on that totem pole. And so, but I was, I had access to all these areas and, and rubbed shoulders with these guys. And so one of the brothers was really into the arts. He bought a building that was kind of dilapidated downtown Fort Worth. He renovated it and turned it in. He loved jazz music. And so the, in the grand opening, they had some famous jazz musician coming and conductor. And I didn't know who they were. But anyways, I scored two tickets for opening night. So, you know, I, my wife and I, we get as dressed up as we can possibly get, and uh, we get in our little clunker car, drive up to the venue, and guess what? I'm behind, you know, here's a guy in me, the Jaguar, here's every Mercedes you could think of, every BMW, everything, and so it's valet parking, it's all valet. I drive up, and here's my wife and I in our little clunker, and I'm thinking... What are these guys thinking? You know, these valet guys, they got to be thinking, who in the world is this dude? How in the world did you get here? And how did you score these? So I just kind of felt bad. I felt like I was of no value, of no worth. And, and so this is what Solomon is talking about. And when we get into that competitive spirit, it all of a sudden begins a shift within us that creates envy, and therefore I'm never satisfied with what I have or where I am because I'm always envious of what other people have. And so this can be exasperated by social media because now you can post everything, where you ate, what you ate, where you live, where you went on vacation, all the things that you saw, your family, and you give everybody the highlight reel of your life, like your life is perfect, wonderful. And so other people whose life at that moment in time is really crummy, and, and uh, they're thinking, man, if I only had that life, if I'd only married that, a person like that, if I've only you know, had that income, and before long, envy begins to poison us. And he says, that can become an evil thing. 
Because watch this, and here's why it's evil. Because now your joy is tied to somebody else's misery. Like if they get the new Beamer, and you think, well, I should have that. And then they wreck it next week, a little twinge, and you're like, yeah, good for you, right? You know, they marry the beautiful woman, and then, you know, a couple years later, they're getting a divorce, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, yeah, vindicated, right? When someone on the pedestal falls off the pedestal, and it brings kind of joy within your heart that they've kind of fallen off the pedestal, evilness, God's perspective of evil has entered into the realm of your heart. We think evil in terms of somebody who does horrible things, but God's, God has a different definition for the word. And so what do you do with evil people? What, what do you do if you're around people who are driven by envy, who are driven by comparison? And here's what the Bible teaches. You keep them at a distance because you don't want to be infected by them. Because they are infectious. Because before long, then you start the comparison game and you get, get in the envy thing and so you don't draw near to them before, because otherwise they will ultimately hurt you. You don't give them a lot of information because they'll use that information against you to harm you because they might be envious of you. They may be jealous of you. So you keep them at a, at a distance. The second person he talks about is the foolish person in verse 6, or verse 5, I mean, he says, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Now, an evil person is very dangerous, but a foolish person is very irresponsible. They're flat out lazy most of the time. A foolish person does not accept reality and do not adjust their lives to reality. Ultimately, ultimately, here's the desire of every foolish person. They want somebody else to take care of them. They want somebody else to do everything for them. They don't want to take any responsibility for their life. They don't want to take responsibility for anything. And so they think to themselves, you know, I have needs. I have needs for somebody to comfort me and feed me and pursue me and love me and provide for me. And, and so, but they don't want to put forth the effort of that. They just think everybody else ought to do that for them. And so in their passive mind, they are a righteous victim. You know, I'm, I'm a good person, but I never get the breaks. The opportunities never happen for me. Nothing ever turns out the way I planned it. And here's what the foolish person does, is that they want to befriend themselves with a wise person who is more loving and more kind and more generous. And the reason why they want to befriend them is because they want to shift all of their responsibilities onto the wise person. Like, you take care of me, right? So it's like, I'm, I'm going to befriend you. I don't want to work and have to pay my bills. I'll befriend you so you'll pay them for me, right? Or I don't want to do this, so I'll befriend you so that you can take over this responsibility for me. And if you're not careful, here's what the wise person does. We talked about this many a couple years ago when I, I used a backpack, remember? They've got all their stuff in the backpack and they're trying to hand the backpack of responsibility off to you and you take it and shoulder it for them and they love that, right? But the problem is if you're shouldering their responsibilities as your own, that develops a relationship called codependency that is never healthy, ever. Because we are all responsible for our lives and so what happens when you have a discussion with a foolish person is that they will argue that you are always wrong, you just don't understand them, you're just not getting the whole picture, and what you're going to find is that you're going to have the same argument over and over and over and over again. But they're not going to change. They're not going to pick up responsibility. Why? Because they've never been forced to pick up responsibility. And so one of the things you have to do with a foolish person is that, you notice he says this leads them to ruin. Um, with a foolish person is that you, they need to suffer consequences. Right? You have to allow them to bear the consequences of their decisions. For example, if they say, well, I'm hungry, I'm going to say, well, get a job. You can eat, <laughs> right? Now, I'm not talking about people who can't work. I'm not talking, I'm just talking about somebody who can, but they just don't want to, right? Or they don't want to pay their car payment. They don't want to 
you know, have to pay rent. They don't want to have, they don't have to do any of these things. They just want everybody else to do it for them and um, take the responsibility off of them. For example, you may have a child who's foolish and they don't want to do their homework. So as I would say to my children is, listen, all right, if you don't want to do your homework, don't do your homework. But I'm going to tell you what, if you just keep flunking, you might be the only 16-year-old in sixth grade. But that's your problem, not mine. Or if <laughs> you, uh, you, you don't want to show up for work because you can't get out of bed and you expect me to get you up, eh, that ain't happening. You got an alarm clock? Set it. If that don't work, you better set two of them, maybe three of them. You need to start adulting. I'm not your adult parent anymore. Uh, you're, you are an adult, therefore you need to take responsibility for your life. Therefore, you need to get yourself up because... If I have to get you up, I adapt the Medea method where you take a bucket of water and throw it on them and they'll get up after that, right? They're not going to push that button again. So the, the point is, and you can take all kinds of extreme measures, the consequences are not to punish someone, but to show them that they have shifted their responsibility and their pain onto you where it should not be. They have to learn how to take responsibility for their own lives, and the only way they'll do that is if they experience the pain of not doing it. As long as you keep bailing them out, they don't learn a thing. They have no motivation to change. They have no motivation to take up their responsibilities because mommy and daddy are always doing it for them. Now, I'm not saying that as a mother and father, there aren't times that you jump in and you help your children, but this is like a foolish person. This is like an ongoing thing with them because they don't want to take responsibility for anything. They want you to take the responsibility and just let them do whatever it is they feel compelled to do at that moment in time in their life. And so this is one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons we have a problem with God. It's because we expect God to do everything for us and God says, I will do everything I'm supposed to do, but you've got to do everything you're supposed to do. And when the two meet, things happen. How many Christians do I know that say, come to me and say, Pastor, you know, I did this, this, and, and, and God's just not coming through for me, and God's just not coming through for me. And I said, well, uh, tell, let me ask you this question. What, what have you done in response? You're praying about this. What have you done to help move yourself forward in this area of your life? Well, you know, I, I haven't done much anything. I, you know, I just... It's like our daughter, our oldest daughter, when we, you know, she, she just had no interest in, like, going, doing anything on the weekends. And we're like... But she wants to be married. Well, how do you think that's going to happen? Like this guy's going to just show up on the doorstep, knock on the door one day and say, hey, I'm here. <laughs> right? So if you, if you want to meet some guys, you better get out there and, and mingle somewhere. And you better, you know, build some relationships or whatever it is. <sighs> okay, I had to eat those words a bit because that's almost what happened with our oldest daughter. Is that she had a friend who knew a guy. And they were having, the, you know, a festival in Canal Winchester. They showed up on our doorstep and said, Stacy, come with us. And this girl was married and, and this guy was single. And, and so my, my wife and I looked at him and we thought, this ain't never going to happen. <laughs> a, he's got a job. B, he's got no tattoos. And C, and we were going down the list. Because our, our daughter tended, you know, like she liked a little more of the bad, you know, bad guys, bad boys. Until you marry one, then you don't want one, but you think you do. Uh, so we thought, well, this will never work out. And they never, that, was, that was it from day one. They were inseparable, got married a year later, and here they are four or five years later, still, still happily married. Amen. Amen? Yeah, right? Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> don't want you moving back home. <laughs> now, here's what living for self does to us is if I'm living for self, it desensitizes me to the needs of others. And you look at the very first three verses in this uh, chapter, Solomon says, I saw with tears, uh, the, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter, and power was on the side of their oppressor, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who are already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not been yet been who has not yet seen the evil that is done under the sun. And so Solomon is saying, in essence, you know what? Uh, remember, Solomon didn't have a problem with 
poverty, he had a problem with pleasure. The guy owned everything. He had more of anything of everything that you could ever own or possess. So it wasn't his problem of lack. He had so much stuff, and he had, he, remember, we looked a couple of weeks ago, he built his life around me, my, mine, and it was all about me, and it was all about living for self, and God got pushed out the back door of his house, and, and it's just living for self. And Solomon gets a little bit excited here because he says, because I still feel something for those who are oppressed. But over time, what happens if we're not careful, we live for self, we are desensitized to the needs of others around us. And see, even technology can do this to you if you're not careful. You pick up your iPhone, and if you have an iPhone, if you don't have an iPhone, shame on you. Uh, but, and you go to like your news feed, and you're, you're looking at things like, you know, the poor in Ethiopia and, and children with their stomachs extended, and the next one's, you know, a funny pet store, and then it's something else. It's a remodel of a home. And so we start scrolling through that feed so quickly we give it about a nanosecond, and what we are doing, and we are conditioning our brains to not think, feel, or act on something anymore. And so Solomon says this is the problem, and what excited him was not about his next iPad, Apple Watch, or purchase. What excited him it was he had this, this acute distress within him over those who were oppressed. But then he digresses again. <laughs> he says, well, you know, it would be better off if we'd never been born. <laughs> the dead are better off than we are. It would been better off if we had not been born at all. And, you know, there are still people in this day who have that mentality. I have a friend who's a counselor, and she has a couple who are clients, and they're arguing with each other constantly over whether or not they should have children. And the thought process of the wife is, I don't want to bring children into this world because this world is so evil and it's so harmful. It'd be better off that they weren't even ever born, and then they don't have to put up with any of this. Same thoughts of Solomon. And so this is where, if we're not careful, living a evil, foolish life takes us. It's just like, oh God, just get us out of the world. Right? Jesus, come quickly. I get that concept. I understand what you're saying. But Jesus, before he comes, has a work for us to do. And it won't get accomplished if we're gone. Living for self can drive us to these conclusions and so here's the third person is the wise person. In verse 6, he says, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. In other words, the wise live for others out of a deep sense of contentment. Now, we all know someone who's probably evil or foolish. We've all have probably been there ourselves. I can tell you exactly some of the evil and foolish things that I have thought and that I have done in my life, but hopefully I've grown in wisdom as, from, as Solomon does. And so what does it mean to be wise? It's not talking about IQ. It's not talking about education. The heart of a wise person is humble, teachable, moldable, adaptable. And so what Solomon's going to learn is how, how God begins to shape and mold and fashion our hearts after his. And so that's the goal behind the wisdom. They're not evil and driven by envy, nor are they foolish in transferring their responsibility of their life onto others. The wise person says, yes, this is my life. It's my decisions. These are my choices that I'm making. These are my responsibilities. I want to learn. I want to learn from my past mistakes because I don't want to make the same mistakes over again. And I want to learn from the mistakes of others because they can help me bypass some mistakes I would have made had I not observed the mistakes they are making. No, I, I want my life to be not about me, but about we. In all of our lives, we've known people. Now, notice what he says. I see, because here's the key of, of wisdom. He says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. What is he saying? All right, so God has given you one hand with which to work, to accumulate, you do your job, you, you know, you're accumulating, you have possessions, you have all these things, but the second hand God has given you is for relationships, it's for generosity, 
It's for building friendships. It's for building um, community. Um, it's to love. It's to be generous, to be peaceful, to be restful. And so he says, um, with the one hand, I go out and I produce. And with the other hand, I invest in people, in life, in memories. One of the things I say at every funeral that I've ever preached is when it all comes down to the end, the three things that are the most precious to you are your faith, your family, and your friends. So the other hand is to be investing in those things. So here's what Solomon's warning is. His warning is that if I'm foolish and if I'm evil and if I'm constantly comparing and I'm driven by a heart of covetousness and jealousy and and I want others to take responsibility, then either I I won't do anything or I I will work, 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 work with both hands and I will spend hours upon hours upon hours upon hours Building and accumulating and, and ma- you know, amassing as much money as I can. And that's why we as Americans have, we have so much debt and we have 50,000 storage units out there to keep all of our stuff. He says, we just keep doing this and we're in this rat race of accumulation of possessions thinking that's the meaning and purpose and the drive of our lives. And then when our life comes to an end, we didn't even have a chance to enjoy and we never invested in our relationships, which were the most important thing in our lives. And we miss it all. And he said, as Jesus said, of a man who kept building bigger, bigger barns, and his life was called in that night, and Jesus said of that man, he was a fool. And that's exactly what Solomon says. That's a very foolish way to live. This is not what God designed us to be or to do. And so he says, you know, we've, we've got electricity now. We've got lifestyles that can go, 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 go. He says, no, 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 no. He says, with one hand you work, yes. But the purpose for my labor, the purpose for my work is to invest in the, the lives of other people. Yes, I work to put a, a roof over my family's head and to feed my children, but that's not the only purpose for my work. My purpose for my work is also to be generous to others and, and allow God to take what he's graced me with and blessed me with and let that flow through my hands into the lives of others. So if there's a need that is brought to my attention, then I'm willing to step in and, and do whatever I can to meet that need. It's just not all about me anymore. It's not me, it's we. And so he goes on to say, here's four benefits of the we-not-me relationship. Now, poor Solomon lacked friendships and relationship. Listen, he had 1,700 wives, 300 concubines, had hundreds of kids probably, 32,000 people who worked in his palaces. But Solomon was an increase, he was an incredibly lonely man. Now, you can walk into a a stadium of 80,000 people and be lonely and feel alone. Because Solomon... Remember, all he did was just one thing after another. I've got this building project and this building project. I'm going to this vineyard and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And he just, all of his life, he was chasing, filling both hands with toil and never took the time to build relationships. Not even with God. And so here he says there are some benefits with having friends, family, relationships that are we, not me. And here's the first one in verse 7. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a small, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Imagine that. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment to this is, this too is meaningless, a miserable business. And so the first one is that of sharing right? The benefit of a we-not-me relationship is we share. It is, um, you know, the evil person is always competing through obtaining more and more. The foolish person, they just, you know, they just don't want to take responsibility for life. But those who, who want to, to, to say, you know what, I, I toil with this hand, but I share with this one. The reason I have stuff is not just to hoard it up for myself, but to allow it to you know, be reflective into the lives of somebody else. In other words, giving is a blessing. We wrongly teach that you give to get 
We don't give to get. Giving is the deal. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, right? Because that is the blessing. That, that does bring meaning and purpose to my life and joy and contentment. And so when I found out this family had lost, you know, everything they had in the fire, I said, okay, what can I do? What can we do? I said, Marla, well, what are we going to do? She said, whatever you want to do. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're giving money. I don't have clothes, uh, you know, to give. I, I can't do that, but I can, I can at least monetarily give. Why? Because that is the blessing, right? It, the blessing isn't that I'm expecting anything from them in return. I don't even know them, but the blessing is just in the, the giving and the sharing. If our mentality is to work harder and hoard more, regardless of what is being amassed and accumulated, then I will miss out on the blessing of sharing. Here's the second one is in verse 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity a man who falls and has no one to help him. And so that's the, that's the key here. It's helping, right? He says, man, it's great, if, you know, it's great to have a friend. That two, there's two of you, but it's even better if you have two friends. Now there's three of you because, you know, you've heard the phrase, I've got your back. You know that you have friends that have your back, right? If, if, you're gonna, if you need help, if you need comfort, you need encouragement, whatever it is you might need, you know that you can call them up. I know there's, there's people in this church I can call up at any moment and at any given time and say, you know what, I really need some help, I really need some encouragement, I really need this, and I know that they're going to drop everything, if possible, and come and help me. That's richness. Rather than not having anybody, Right? You're just also, you know, I know people who work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and they got nobody. If you're busy building your life and not your relationships, and your life gets hard, then there's nobody to help you. And when times are tough, and they will be, friends and family, they're the ones who are going to come and help you and see you through. Number three is comforting. Verse 11, also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one make keep warm alone? And so here's referring to, you know, like in that day and time, you had an outer cloak, and if you were traveling with somebody, you used the outer cloak as, at night to um, cover yourself like a blanket, and then you would, you know, get together clo in close proximity because the warmth of your body helps warm everybody else. And so we all need comfort from time to time. And so the, another aspect of this is loneliness. You know, loneliness is a huge, huge deal in our day and time. Even though we have all kinds of social media, people are never lonelier than they are in our day and time, despite all the technology that we have. And so uh, who, who's going to help you in the midst of your, your loneliness? You know, there's, there's a difference between solitude and isolation. Solitude is a time that you can be with the Lord to heal and pray and receive and recover. Isolation is when you are all alone. And it's just like a, a very sad thing. I mean, you know, when my wife and I, we jokingly, when, you know, our kids got older and started marrying off about, oh, we can't wait to be empty nesters. And, um, but when my kids were gone and there's nobody else in the house but my wife and I, I had a hard time with that. I, I hated the silence. I hated the, 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 the sense of aloneness. And then it wasn't long after that, our dog died. And, and I got nobody when I come home, you know, about, you know, that's the beautiful thing about dogs. It doesn't matter if you've been gone five minutes or five hours. They're just happy, to, whoop, you know, all ramped up to see you. Somebody's excited to see me. Well, so, you know, then one, my, uh, then my daughter and son-in-law, um, moved back in with us, uh, shortly after they got married as they were saving up to buy a house. And then they had a our grandson while they were with us, and they lived with us for about a year and a half, and um, a part of that time, we were all in a two-bedroom apartment as our house was being built. <laughs> for that, we did that for about six months. So uh, then I'm like, I think I want to go back to that empty nest stuff. I, I think I like that better than, yeah, so comforting. It's the ministry of presence, being with somebody. You know, technology can help connect us with people in many marvelous ways, but you can't build relationship apart from proximity, right? And so you need that togetherness. You know, you can't build a 50-year-old marriage just on FaceTime with one another, 
right? You can't parent your children through texting. You have proximity, you're building, you're comforting, you're protecting one another. Uh, is the last one. He says in verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, who, who's protecting you? Who are you protecting? People say, again, you know, I've got my back, and you, and you know that's, that's true. And so this crash course that Solomon gives to us with people, he says there are evil people that you need to kind of watch your distance uh, with them. There are foolish people that you need to build some boundaries and you need to give them responsibilities and let them, you know, hang on to their consequences to to move them forward in life, which is the wise thing to do. And then you have people who are wise, their family and friends. And and the reason why you benefit from that relationship is because it is a relationship of sharing and helping and comforting and protecting one another. This is the way God designed the church. It's the way he designed the family unit. It's the way that God has designed humanity. It's not me, but it's we. And so, all of this cumulative together is to help us become more loving, more kind, more generous, more giving, more godly. So I'm just going to drop these two things in. I want to wrap this up um, with a statement that Jesus made that I think really solidifies what Ecclesiastes 4 gets us to. If you read verses uh, 13 through 16, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that, but basically it's on lessons about wisdom. Where does wisdom come from, and where does it not come from? And he says where it doesn't come from is, uh, first of all, age. Just because you're older doesn't necessarily mean that you're a wise person. You can, you can be old and foolish, you can be old and evil, or you can be old and wise. That's not, the, that's not just sheer age doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be wise, Wisdom is built through experiences, and you learn from them, and you make course corrections as God is directing your life. The second is through hardships. Just because you've become through a hardship doesn't mean that you've learned wisdom. You can, because remember, God does his deepest work and the deepest part of us through those valleys he takes us through and walks with us through because he does want to build within us wisdom. And then there's, you don't get wise through wealth or poverty. He talks about this in these verses. You can be wealthy or poor and not necessarily be, be a wise person. And he says fame doesn't bring that about. Just because you're famous doesn't mean you're wise. And I think it's absolutely amazing that we think every movie star, every famous person, when they, they speak words, they're like, oh, that, that's got to be the wisdom of God flowing out of their mouth. Eh, no, it's not. You need to take what they say and scrutinize that through what God says and know that God's wisdom is far exceedingly and abundantly above their wisdom. Don't believe everything you hear just because somebody is famous. Bible warns about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's where wisdom comes from, the Holy Spirit, first of all. God has given you this beautiful relationship with the Holy Spirit who enables us to fill us, empower us to have wisdom. He downloads us into us wisdom. The second thing is through Scripture. And it is the Bible that gives us God's thoughts. It's the Bible that gives us His direction. Everything we, we do, we have to filter it through God's word, as is, is this truth, is it healthy, is it wise, is it the wise thing to do? One of the questions I always say to ask, you know, in, in light of my past experiences and in light of my present condition and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? And so whatever you sense that to be, you filter it through scripture because the spirit is never going to give you something contrary to God's word. And so it's where we hear the voice of God. Number three is through wise people, right? God surrounds you with wise people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are learning through their experiences of life, and who know the word of God. And they can give you sound advice and help you, guide you through your life and and making wise decisions. Observation. Solomon says, man, look at my life and see the foolish things that I did. (laughs) Look at my life. Look at the evil things. There are worse some patterns there you don't want to do, right? I've, I've done enough counseling where adultery has been a part of the marriage. And before the couple ever says to me how they ended up in that place, I can say to them, 
Tell me if this isn't it. Dot, 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 dot. Because the pattern, although the circumstances and the people are different, the pattern is always the same that led them up to that moment in their life. And all you, yeah, 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 yeah. Number, the last one is self-reflection. Self-reflection. This is what Solomon's doing, right? He's saying, listen, was I wise? Was I evil? Was I foolish? Was I close to the Lord? Or was I far from the Lord? Was I filled with the Spirit? Or was I um, grieving and quenching and resisting the Spirit? Was I submitting to Scripture? Was I resisting the Scripture? Was I surrounding myself with wise people? Or did I pick all my friends as to be yes people who just told me what I wanted to hear, not was really what was best for me? Did I observe the lives of others or learn or, or um, learn vicariously from their successes and their failures? Or was I a person who just plowed ahead with my eyes closed, hoping it would be different for me? Now, here's why Solomon points all of this out in closing this. And I want you to go to John chapter 13, because I'm going to read a passage, just one verse, what Jesus said and what he's trying to do. When you're building relationships, and relationships are so vitally important in our lives, right? For sharing, helping, comforting, protecting, those things, there's the benefits of it. But you have to be careful about who you're building them with and how you're building them, depending upon the person and what it is, where they are and where, where you are. But here's the ultimate outcome in Jesus' heart for us as to why we need to move from me to we. Because as long as I stay encased in my me self-life, I begin to lose. I begin to lose love for others. Others become a means of getting something. Others may become a means of uh, helping me get ahead, but I really lose that sense of, of love. Because the greatest display of love is always through we, not me. Here's what Jesus said. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, Jesus, watch it. He wasn't commanding them to feel something. He was commanding them to do something. It's difference, right? We think in terms of love, and America is just all about ooey-gooey feelings and this, that, and the other. You know, if even if you read the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, it has nothing to do with feelings. It had everything to do with commands, right? Everything you should be doing as, as a person who loves. Now, notice what Jesus says. Love one another as what? As I have loved you. And so Jesus is clear. I want my followers to do unto others exactly what I have done Unto you. Now, at the moment they heard this, they're sitting together. They're having Passover meal together. Jesus is going to be crucified in just a few hours. We think of that in terms, okay, well, immediately our minds go to the cross. The, the cross hasn't happened yet. Their mind will go to a special divine moment they had with Jesus. For example, here's Matthew. And Matthew's thinking, man, I, I spent my life as a tax collector for Rome. I was hated by my fellow countrymen. And yet Jesus walked up to me one day and he says, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. I want you to follow after me. I will be your rabbi. I will teach you. I will pour my life in you. And Matthew would be thinking about that moment in time time where no one had ever taught him or even reached out to him with such love and grace and mercy. And then he says, by this, everyone will know. The word this is a demonstrative pronoun, which points to something very specific. In this particular case, Jesus pointed to the, the, the one specific thing that was to be the identifying characteristic of all of his father, followers is that, what? And this is how they will know that you're my disciples by the way you love. By the way you love. Not by the way you dress. Not by the car you drive. Not by the possessions in your garage. Not by the home that you live in. But by the way you love. His primary concern was not that they believe something 
but that they do something. And the litmus test of being a bona fide Jesus follower was not a ritualistic day of the week, festival-driven, don't forget your goat for worship to this, you know, invisible God. No, Jesus says the litmus test, Jesus' followers would demonstrate their devotion to God by putting the person next to them, in front of them, in other words, moving from me to we. And so, Jesus' love for the men in the room rather than his authority over the men in that room, is what he leveraged to instruct them and to inspire them to follow him and to take up their own cross. Or to put it this way, Jesus didn't anchor his new command to his divine right as king, though he was. He anchored it to his sacrificial love because nobody had loved them more than he did better than he did, or more sacrificially than he did. And so what does love require of me? It is to be our guide, our signpost, and our compass as we navigate through the unavoidable complexities of life that is inherent in every relationship. When I say distance yourself from a foolish person, I don't mean kick them out of your life. I'm just saying you got to keep some distance, but you can love them from a distance. As you begin to try to love them and draw them in to relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying that you take a foolish person and you just like kick them to the curb. No, you have to invest in them. But if you will love them and invest in them, and then over time you begin to see some changes take place. It might be a baby step and it might be like you know two steps forward and three back or they get up and they fall down and you know it's they're all over the map but if you give up on them and you give up too early then they'll just stay in that condition but if you hang with them with the wisdom and the love of God and Christ it's amazing how God can begin to change someone's heart it may happen in a year it may take five years it may take 10 years I don't know the question is how patient is your love. So what Solomon reminds us is that the most precious relationships that we have are faith, family, and friends. So live to love them, and then you will discover what you're truly living for. And by the way, the byproduct of that, there's some joy and there's some happiness along the way. So I, I close with this. Tuesday night, I had the opportunity take my little grandson sledding. My son-in-law called us up and said, hey, you want to go take Cooper out sledding? Yeah. So I met him over here at the fort thing here in Obetz, and they got a hill there where you can sled ride. So I, I jump out of my car. They pull up in their car, and my little grandson, he jumps out of that car. He comes running across that parking lot. He grabs my legs, and he hugs me. He says, Papa, Papa, I'm so glad you're here with me. I so love you. Thank you for sledding with me tonight. That's enough to melt anybody's heart. Why will I spend my days, whatever I've got left, investing in that boy? Because I love him. But I love you also. And so every week, I come and I invest myself into you by opening up God's word because I hope and pray that we as a church will move from me to we. Let's pray together.